and welcome back to the Chris Ye podcast. This is, as always, Chris Ye. And I am joined by my friend and old professor, actually, let's not use the word old, former professor, Professor Emeritus of Harvard Business School, Richard Tedlow. Richard, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, Chris, it's a pleasure to be back. So today we are actually going to be discussing one of the pivotal female entrepreneurs of the 20th century, someone whose name is literally a household name, Mary Kay Ash. And I understand that you actually taught a Mary Kay Ash case at the Harvard Business School. Uh, Tell me more about that. I did uh, indeed, and it was an interesting experience because the way um, uh, the way I handled it was by teaching the first third of the class um, basically on just who she was and what her accomplishments were, and the class uh, was very well disposed toward her. Then I showed a clip of a 60-minute uh, uh, segment that Morley Safer did with her back, I, I think it was in the 1980s, I believe, um, and then uh, discussed her for the remainder of the class, and people were much more negative toward her uh, after having seen that clip. And that clip, I think, is on YouTube, and maybe uh, if, if you can find a link, if there's a possibility of, um, of, uh, of, of putting that at the end of this uh, podcast. I think uh, I think the listeners would get a kick out of uh, seeing it and be uh, much informed by it. Absolutely. Well, I definitely will do that. But what rather than asking them to pause and watch the video, why don't you go on and talk about this? Because that's remarkable, right? To think that the first third of the class, they have one attitude, they watch a clip, and then all of a sudden they have a different attitude. What happened? Um, I think that in, in the clip, there... There was almost a sense that uh, that this wasn't quite real, that uh, um, there was more exploitation than they had expected, and um, the veneration of Mary Kay, as um, as Morley Safer says, at seminar, which is their big blowout kind of dub dub DC, basically. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a really big deal. Um, uh, she doesn't walk onto the stage, she levitates, and she literally does. She comes up from an ele elevator, brings her up from the bottom of, uh, from below the stage, and uh, the sort of almost the deification of her, and the, the feeling that um, it was a little bit, for a Harvard Business School class, you know, a lot of members of which are gonna wind up at Goldman Sachs or the moral equivalent of that, uh, it was a little too rah-rah, um, you know, it was a little too, uh, the, there, were sing, there were songs being sung, and, um, you know, that, that was, um, also, you might, this, is a, this company is based in Dallas, and uh, there, was, there was kind of a southwestern feel to it, even though it's, it's very global now, um, and I think that that somehow didn't go over uh, quite as well in the Northeast. The students felt they were too cool for Mary Kay. Yes. Now, uh, what, what is interesting about this is that if I had not shown that uh, tape, but had rather shown the tape of when Mary Kay came to the Harvard Business School, made a presentation and took questions from students, there wouldn't have been that sense at all. Because she, she really uh, was very deft 
and very skilled at handling herself. And uh, in, in, this was in what was once Burden Hall. Chris, maybe you remember that's now been replaced by a spectacular building. But it was a big turnout for her. And uh, she was asked tough questions. And believe me, she could handle all of them. And the students pretty quickly uh, realized that they were in the, um, in the hands of somebody who, who they could safe being, feel safe being in, the, in her hands because she knew how to, how to handle herself. When students get nervous, they get nervous because um, whoever it is, the teacher, the, the invited guest, whatever, seems reticent or um, unsure of herself or himself. And that was not a problem that Mary Kay had. As a matter of fact, one of the questions that was asked in, in that session when she came to the Harvard Business School was, you know, this, this company is so much uh, a reflection of you. Uh, so, and hopefully this won't happen for a long time, but you're not going to be around forever. What's next? And she handled that really deftly. She said, um, you know, I'm well aware I'm not going to be around forever. And by the way, I say that. I let people know that that the company's gonna have to go on without me one of these days. And uh, it was just, uh, it was quite remarkable. Um, and not to spoil the ending, but the company has gone on without her. And in fact, as many times the size that it was at the time of her death, when it was already quite a major enterprise then. Yes. So she somehow did imbue the company with a culture that's able to persist after her death. I believe she passed away nearly 20 years ago now. In 2001, uh, but uh, she uh, had a stroke, uh, I believe in 1996, and the stroke uh, rendered her incapable of speech. And um, that, that, was, that was really a terrible, I mean, it's almost like Beethoven going deaf. I mean, this is a woman who had, had spoken and inspired and uh, cultivated the aspirations of the people whom she inspired for her whole life. And uh, to be robbed of the ability to do that uh, was, you know, ironic. Interestingly enough, uh, at one of the last seminars, say, I think the stroke, my recollection is, is 1996. She died in 2001. She still would attend the seminars, but she wouldn't speak. At, at one of the last ones, she did get up in front of everyone, uh, and there are a lot of people who come to this seminar in Dallas and at their own expense. Uh, and um, she was able to say, you can do it, which is what her mother always said to her when she was a, a child, and is basically the message that she transmitted to her acolytes to the consultants that she which is what they're called and they're basically the people who sell Mary Kay cosmetics are independent contractors they're independent business people running their own businesses um, and uh, this you can do it attitude is in fact also present in Sam Walton it's present in Steve Jobs these are people, very different people from different parts of the country and very different businesses. The idea that you can do it is so powerful a charismatic message uh, that that's actually the working title of the book that I'm working on. So whether it will remain the title, we'll see, but that's, that's the message.
And it's so incredibly important that the message is you can do it. It's not I can do it. It's not even necessarily we can do it. It's you can do it. Absolutely. And that's what makes a person a charismatic leader. They give that belief to the people that they're leading. That's correct. Um, and she, uh, actually, there's some interesting similarities between her and Sam Walton. I mean, Sam Walton, one way he became as well-liked as he was in college was by making it a practice to say hello to someone walking down the street toward him, down the sidewalk toward him, before that person said hello to Sam. Uh, Mary Kay imagines when, or imagined, when she was building the company, that whoever she met with, whomever she met with, had an invisible sign that said in capital letters, make me feel important. And in, in a certain sense, that's what Walton did when he said hello to somebody whom he may not have even known. But you know, that's, that's the kind of attitude that, that charismatic people have when they interact with others. And I think it could be said that in many ways, Mary Kay was not selling cosmetics. Mary Kay was selling charisma. The purpose of the cosmetics was to make people feel better about themselves and to be able to make people feel important. Um, yeah, cosmetics are a, you know, a funny product category in a million, for a million different ways. I mean, Mary Kay ha has written and I'm calling her Mary Kay because that's how she wanted to be referred to. I'm not calling her by her last name, which was Ash. Uh, she, she has an interesting statement uh, to the effect that um, putting on a happy face is really important because when you do, um, I'm just gonna see if I can find the direct quote. When you do, before you know it, that happy face becomes the real you. In other words, what you seem becomes what you are. And that's, if you will, the magic of cosmetics. And, you know, that, that's either true or it isn't. I think it's true for some people. It certainly isn't for me, but uh, um, it's, it's true for some people. It isn't for others. But if you, if you believe that, then by selling cosmetics, you are helping women to be the beautiful creatures that you're basically doing God's work. And Mary Kay was devoutly religious, Southern Baptist. And um, she said one of the reasons the company succeeded was we took God in as a partner. And one of the things that, that in the 60 Minutes uh, segment that I mentioned, uh, Morley Safer says to her, you know, don't you think that in a way you're using God and she says, uh, without missing a beat, I hope not. I sincerely hope not. I hope he's using us. As I say, this is a woman who could handle herself pretty well. And uh, this is the direct quote, by the way. I just found it. You see, the funny thing about putting on a happy face is that if you do it again and again, pretty soon that happy face is here to stay. It becomes the real you. Uh, I don't know, you know. Um, uh, you know, I think I guess that's true for some people, but it's not true for a lot of others. Hmm. Well, we've heard a lot now about Mary Kay, and some we see some of the themes that have been so prevalent throughout in our discussion of the charismatic leaders. 
the ability to make it an emotional relationship, the ability to imbue in people the sense of possibility and power. But let's turn it back to the beginning. Where did Mary Kay Ash come from? What created this remarkable woman? Came from Hot Wells, uh, Texas, which is uh, now part of, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It's now part of a place called Cyprus, which is unincorporated. It's about 30 miles, I believe it's northwest of Houston. Uh, it's, um, uh, and I, I gather, I've never been there, that Cyprus is a wealthy exurb or suburb of Houston. Um, Hot Wells in 1918, when she was born, was not. I mean, it was, you were sort of in the middle of nowhere. Once again, not unlike Sam Walton being born in Kingfisher, Oklahoma, which was, you know, 45 or 50 miles outside of Oklahoma City, uh, also in 1918. Okay, so uh, Mary Kay's mother was a uh, nurse, but she found she could get a, a better paying job as a restaurant manager in Houston. Uh, which was about 30 miles away, as I believe I mentioned, uh, but it was a long way. She would leave home at 5 a.m. and get back at 9 p.m. And uh, when Mary Kay was seven, her father came home from a sanatorium where he was being treated for tuberculosis. Uh, the progress of the disease was halted, but he never really recovered. And so he was uh, disabled for the rest of Mary Kay's life. And at the age of seven, she found herself, she had older siblings, but they had left home. She found herself taking care of her father by herself, as well as going to school. And uh, what, what would happen would be, her father would say, I want you know, X or Y or Z for dinner. And Mary Kay would call her mother uh, at the restaurant where her mother worked. And um, her mother would tell her how to do it, how to fix whatever it was that uh, dad wanted. And no matter how complicated it sounded, her mother would always end by saying, you can do it. And that's where Mary Kay got that tagline, you can do it no matter how difficult it seems. And uh, that's also what she transmitted to uh, her consultants. Uh, she was born to sell. I mean, she uh, sold Girl Scout cookies, encyclopedias, this, that, and the other. Uh, she got a job um, with, uh, after she was married, she was married in 1935 to a man named uh, Rogers, who was a gas station attendant, I believe, who also was a uh, part-time musician with uh, a band called the Hawaiian Strummers. They had three kids, uh, two boys and a girl, uh, boy, girl, boy, was the order, was the birth order. And the marriage was already in trouble by the time World War II came around. When World War II did come around, uh, he joined the army. And when he came back, he said, I want a divorce. I'm having an affair with another woman. And that's, she's kind of the love of my life. And this was, uh, this hit Mary Kay very, very, very hard. I mean, she said it's the low point of her life. She felt like a complete failure having, uh, you know, believing so uh, devoutly actually in, uh, in family and family values. And, uh, but she picked herself up and got back in a race. She, uh, her first job with a company of any 
um, note was with a company called Stanley, which um, was founded by a man who uh, originally worked for Fuller Brush. So it was a, a, a door-to-door independent selling operation. Uh, and uh, early on in her uh, career with this company, she saw uh, a woman being rewarded as queen of sales. And uh, uh, she saw this and said, this is for me. And, and went up to the uh, CEO of the company, whose name I believe was Frank Beveridge, uh, but maybe it wasn't, and said, uh, I, I'm next, next year, I'm gonna be the queen of sales. And he said uh, to her, somehow I think you will. And she said, those five words changed my life. And she got the queen of sales to help her learn how to, how to do what the queen of sales had done. And lo and behold, next, the next year, she was indeed the queen of sales. Um, and she, she, she loved praise and she loved to heap praise on other people. She used to say, we praise our people to success. That was one of her many slogans. Uh, so anyway, uh, she got started in a, uh, a family that was just scraping by. Um, and um, from there, uh, and after a failed marriage, she, nevertheless, her ability to sell and her confidence in herself instilled in her by her mother that you can do it. Uh, is, uh, and also her natural talent. You put all that together and, uh, you know, she uh, worked basically for two noteworthy companies. One was called Stanley and the other was called World Gift. And uh, she sold for those companies. She sold on the party plan, which means that you uh, invite a bunch of people over to your home for what looks, what appears to be a social evening. You may play parlor games, you may serve food. You, there may be a special surprise, you know, gift at the end of it. And meantime, you talk about the products that you're selling. So it, it, it turns, it blurs the distinction between an economic transaction and a social gathering. It also, the party plan also enables one person, in this case, a woman, to sell to, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine people all at one sitting. So uh, she learned that at Stanley, also at World Gift, and she imported that to Mary Kay when she founded the company in 1963 at the age of 45. Now, the founding of Mary Kay is truly a remarkable story. It's one of these things that sounds like it's out of a movie. And in fact, her autobiography is actually titled Miracles Happen. So what happened? Because it was not easy. No. Uh, what happened was uh, she, having been divorced uh, from her first husband, uh, remarried and uh, decided basically to go into business with, with her uh, second husband as a, a partnership. She wanted him to handle 
the, the back office business part of the company. And she wanted to handle the sales and the selling and the public presentations and all the rest of it. Because to her, as she often said, P&L doesn't mean profit and loss, it means people in love. And Chris, in our earlier discussions about charisma, we have pointed out that uh, charismatic relationships transform economic transactions. You work for me, I pay you, into social transactions. You work for me, you help make women the uh, beautiful creatures God created. You work with me and um, you're, you're going to be able to realize your potential, which other companies won't let you realize because you're a woman. Other companies are prejudiced against you because you're a woman. Our company is a, is a company run by women for women. And she was, so th those were the two things that she was uh, you know, very, you know, very proud of. So anyway, in 1963, uh, she and her husband are going to go into business. The, the, the start date for the company, I, I believe, was September 13th, 1963. And on August 13th, 1963, he is going through some numbers at breakfast. She is listening, as she put it, with half an ear. And he has a massive heart attack and drops dead. Hadn't had any chest pain prior to this, came out of nowhere. Wow. And so after the funeral, the question was, what do you do? Are, are you still going to do this company or not? And by the way, I should say that the whole idea for this company happened because uh, she was sick and tired of being passed over herself as a woman because she was a woman. Nevertheless, she had managed to earn enough money so she could retire at the age of 45. And she was writing a book on what her perfect company would be. And she decided that instead of writing a book about it, why don't I just found it? And that's how Mary Kay started. I mean, it started, it, it went from book to company rather than from company to book, which is actually much more common. Um, executives write books about companies they founded rather than writing a book and then founding the company on, you know, on the basis of the book they wrote. Anyway, uh, after her husband died, both her accountant and her lawyer said, look, you're, you're not going to be able to do this by yourself. It's, you're, you're putting your life savings at risk. It's a mistake. Her three children uh, uh, said, mom, I think you can do anything you put your mind to. Um, so one of them gave her all his savings. One of them, Richard Rogers, went to work for the company, took a pay cut to go to work for Mary Kay. And she found nine people who uh, she had run across in the course of life's wanderings who were good saleswomen. And that's how the company started. And the first seminar sounds like Sam Walton's first store. I mean, it was, it was you know, jello melting in the Texas sun on paper plates, but there was a lot of spirit. And uh, that's how the company began. And actually turned a profit the first year. She never had a money losing year, which is not all that common in startups. So Mary Kay starts this company. She involves her family. They invest their life savings. I mean, this is really out of a movie plot. And it's immediately successful and just grows from there. Yes. What makes it so successful? 
Well, um, my, if I had to answer that question in two words, they would be Mary and Kay in that order. She uh, was indomitable, unsinkable, thought nothing was beyond her, and she was truly charismatic. So let me, let me uh, read into the record here. Um, this is a memoir from someone who answered the ad, do you want to come and work at Mary Kay, uh, in, um, uh, in 1963. And uh, this is what she says. Um, uh, this woman was exciting. She was glossy. She radiated money and abundance. She was exactly what I wanted to be. Uh, then she goes on. Um, I, I could not take my eyes off the woman. I had the profound feeling that this moment had been predestined. As the feeling intensified, I had a mental picture of a door I had never before had access to being unlocked. That door led to a better life. Here was a person I could pattern myself after, someone who could help me accomplish what I wanted in life. Now that's just one memoir. I've read others. They all sound like this. Maybe, and, and of course, there's a reason for that. It's only the people who are successful write memoirs. Uh, but nevertheless, that, what you just heard comes pretty close to defining the, the magnetism of charisma. So Mary Kay had it and attracted uh, a, a devoted set of acolytes and uh, consultants who wound up running their own businesses. And not only that, but in, 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 uh, in sort of a, a pyramidal way, in a, it, a pyramid was set up where you could basically, you bought wholesale from Mary Kay, which started off selling wigs in addition to cosmetics. They got rid of the wigs because they were one-time purchases. They wanted a repeat purchase business. Uh, and, um, but you could uh, start off, and if you were successful and you found other people, you could hire them as consultants and, and, there, and climb a ladder of success. I, I think that when the company started, there were five rungs. Today, there are eight rungs this very minute. I got the most recent um, Mary Kay brochure. And eventually, if you make it to the eighth rung today, you, uh, you can make a lot of money. Uh, I mean, one of the early people who, who uh, signed on, a woman named Doretha Dingler, worked for Mary Kay. Well, actually, she worked for herself selling Mary Kay cosmetics. And she wound up making $10 million. And uh, the woman who, uh, whose memoir I just read from, she was from Arkansas, uh, from a very poor background. She, she got a job as a legal secretary, hated it because there was no future. But with Mary Kay's uh, pyramidal uh, method, in other words, you can hire other people to, and then you become the wholesaler to them, then they hire other people and on and on and on. I mean, that's why there are hundreds of thousands of people who are Mary Kay consultants. Uh, you get a piece of what they sell in addition to what you sell. And if you work it right, uh, you, you can make a lot of money. So it's an opportunity that women uh, uh, often didn't have before because they were passed on, passed over because they were, quote, just women, end quote. So, I mean, all this raises an interesting question, which is, is, is this a feminist model? 
because Mary Kay herself put great uh, store by looks, by cosmetics, and yet she's uh, running her own company and she's uh, setting a women up now, it's a global company, with the ability to run their own companies. So, you know, it doesn't fit neatly into anybody's silo. And mind you, this is a company that was named one of the best places to work by Fortune magazine, named one of the top 10 places to work for women. And so it was definitely a place that people felt like they could thrive. But I guess, you know, an important question if we're going to have this discussion is, what is feminism? may not be that we're the right people to define it, but for the purposes of the discussion, we have to ponder, how would we define this? I think it's a difficult question. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not the person uh, to answer it, but I, I, I think that, that modern feminists, even feminists today, uh, would applaud uh, Mary Kay's independence, her, um, her drive, her success, her, her intrepid attitude. I mean, her, her husband dies and a month later, she throws the family fortune into a new company. And by the way, she had never had any experience in cosmetics. Um, and she, you know, she's unsinkable. She succeeds. But nevertheless, she's also a little bit of a feminine mystique kind of a person. I mean, she, she, you know, refuses to tell her age. And in fact, her age is, you know, I said she's born in 1918, and that's the best information we have. But I've read elsewhere that it's not actually clear about that maybe she was born in 1917 or 16 or 15. She would never tell her age when she was at HBS, the Harvard Business School. She, she said, you know, I'm not telling my age, and I don't, I don't tell it. Um, uh, and it also should be said that... Um, uh, there was, there was no reticence about making money. I mean, that was part and parcel of this. As a matter of fact, in the 60-minute clip, you'll see a bunch of people at seminars singing a song to making money. Uh, I, I, you're not old enough to remember the Mickey Mouse Club, but I am. And I actually do remember this. I, funny story this is one of those weird personal things it was still on television when i was a child ah. and my very first words that i spoke were donald duck because oh, really? as you may recall the mickey mouse club they're singing the song m-i-c-k-e-y-m-o-u-s-e and meanwhile donald duck feeling jealous occasionally interjects mickey donald mouse D donald duck mickey mouse donald duck so let's go back to what you just said, M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. If you take a look at the uh, tape, uh, of the 60-minute tape, uh, you'll see them, a group of women singing, and at the end of the song, it, 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 they say M-A-K-I-N-G-M-O-N-E-Y, making money to the same tune that you just sang. So um, there, there was no um, uh, reticence about this. You'll also see them uh, singing, I've got that Mary Kay enthusiasm. Uh, and and so there was a company song, very much like IBM in the early years. Matter of fact, I think on the web, there's an IBM songbook. So uh, singing was something that was very important at seminar. And so were awards. 
She really believed that you could praise people to success. One of the things that she said was, um, if you're going to give an award, buy a $2 gift or of something, wrap it in a $3 package, and give it with $100 worth of praise. That's how you manage that. Uh, she really believed that you praised people to success, which is kind of intriguing because Walton was also that way. But praise can be overused, and then it starts seeming phony. And it's also problematic because, uh, you know, it's got to be followed by, by action. It's got to be earned. I mean, uh, in my life and uh, perhaps in yours, but in many pe people's, I've been praised for something that I didn't deserve. And I just felt that I was dealing with someone who didn't understand who I was. I didn't feel good about it. But she had this ability to sort of figure out who you were. And um, she had an ability to figure out what you were afraid of. And, uh, you know, what most people, especially in direct sales or the party plan, what they're afraid of is rejection. Yes. And she, she knew how to talk you through that in a way that made her, um, that greatly empowered you. And this, I think, uh, any modern feminist would applaud this, what, that greatly empowered you to go out and be the best that you could be. So it, it's intriguing. And that adds to the layers of the social nature of the economic transaction, right? Not only are we talking about an economic relationship, being a Mary Kay consultant that now has these layers of emotion, there is the fact that the emotion itself is part and parcel with the way things are sold. As you said, overcoming rejection, being willing to put yourself out there, having the greater confidence. And the entire business, of course, there's formulations and there's packaging, but it's really a psychological sale. And the products are as much psychological as they are physical. Yes, and there is an interesting question about cosmetics as an industry, which is, you know, what are you really selling? Uh, the classic ample answer, and by the way, this comes from uh, Revlon back in the day, was a, a, a company that I did teach when you were taking my course two decades ago. Uh, they said in the beauty parlor, in the, in the factory, whatever, we fiddle with chemicals, but in the beauty parlor, we sell hope. Mary Kay said, what we, what, what we are selling is femininity. That was what her view was, but what Mary Kay was really selling was herself and her, her vision of, you know, who you could be. Um, she also, I mean, she, she was devoutly religious would always say things like, you know, every time God closes a door, he opens a window. Um, they're, they're, uh, I believe that our company has succeeded because we took God in as a partner. Um, uh, the, her slogan was God first, family second, work third. Now, I got to tell you that there are people who ha uh, dealt with her who didn't feel that she um, actually lived up to those uh, uh, beliefs. Um, but, you know, enough people did uh, so that she um, was very successful. It should also be said 
that of the consultants in 1983 in a Harvard Business School case, it was a Mary Kay Harvard Business School case, there was an 80% turnover per year of Mary Kay consultants. So four out of five women, Mary Kay's mother to the contrary notwithstanding, couldn't do it. But uh, it's, it's a commentary on direct sales and on party plan kind of companies that in the teaching note to that case, the marketing professor asks not why is turnover so high, but rather why is it so low? Because it was actually a good deal lower than Avon or Tupperware or than a lot of the other companies. And I mean, some of them were 150% a year. So, uh, but nevertheless, not everybody benefited. I mean, four out of five people tried it and found they couldn't do it. Um, have you ever sold? Uh, I have never done any traditional direct selling. Like I remember when I was growing up, there would be things that college kids would do like Cutco knives, for example. I recently met someone who is one of the country's premier Cutco salespeople has written books about it. I've never done that. The most selling I've done is selling in a B2B software context. Oh, this I is think a, it's a very different thing. Oh, yes. Believe me. Uh, I have sold. I had a summer job in, in a place called the City of Commerce, which is in just south of Los Angeles. I mean, it's in the Los Angeles County. Um, uh, and um, I went to, I staffed a, a booth for a pharmaceutical company and sold to retail druggists. And uh, they came from all over. And it wasn't easy. Uh, you know, uh, it wasn't easy for a whole bunch of reasons. One was that the guy in the booth next to me uh, was um, very obnoxious. I'll never forget this. I mean, we're talking about something that happened in 1967. Uh, and I didn't know how to handle him. Uh, you know, he kept coming over to my booth and saying, you know, you're, you know, the goods that you're selling are really not all that terrific and this, that, and the other. And finally, another man there came to me. I was young. These people were all professionals and said, you know, is this guy giving you too much trouble? Because if he is, I'm going to talk to him. And I said, no, it's okay. Uh, but I'll never forget that because at the very end of it, uh, one of these trade shows was in um, San Diego and a number of uh, druggists uh, and chain druggists from Mexico came to the show. And uh, at the very end, as the place was closing down, he basically bought the farm and I sort of tripled my sales with, with, with one purchase. And let me tell you, you, you go home feeling pretty good. And when I went to the distributor back in LA, he patted me on the back and said, you know, you've never done this before. You're you know, the greatest thing since night baseball. You feel good. He praised me to success. I mean, that's what he did. But I'm telling you, I, you know, that was more than a half a century ago and I'm still remembering it. So that says something about, about the impact of succeeding at selling. It's really, it really is a high and failing at it really is a low. That is a remarkable story. I can't even imagine it. I'd, I'd love if you could dig it out, if you have any pictures of yourself selling during that time. It's probably unlikely, but if you did, that'd be another great thing to include in the notes for the show. Well, that's very kind of you. So you've started to touch on something that I think is a very important element of this discussion, which is 
is there a dark side to Mary Kay and Mary Kay's charisma? I mean, obviously we've talked very positively about the different things that she did, about the remarkable nature of her story. But as you point out, 80% of the people couldn't do it. And there were people who felt like she didn't live up to her ideals. And your students watched the clip and maybe they weren't turned on. In fact, they were turned off. Was there a dark side to Mary Kay's charisma? Where did that show up? Uh, there is one book that I've run across, which is, I think I'm the only person in the world who's read it, um, written by uh, a woman who became quite disaffected with Mary Kay because she felt that Mary Kay did not live up to her own high ideals. She felt that um, it wasn't God first, family second, work third. It was work first, work second, work third. And um, she also felt that she uh, was not treated well by the company, that she uh, had earned enough to climb the ladder of success higher than they were permitting. By the way, if you get to the very top, you get, you know, the famous pink Cadillac. You may, you may not have heard of this, but... Oh, I have. Um, uh, you, you, Mary Kay herself drove a pink Cadillac and lived in a mansion, which you can, you, know, um, you can also find on the web. Uh, I, you know, it's got like 11 bathrooms and what have you, and um, it's gigantic. Uh, and uh, anyway, the, the pink Cadillac, was, was named Mary Kay Pink because before Mary Kay, General Motors did not sell Cadillacs in pink. And if you, if you make it even today, I believe, to number eight on the ladder of success, you get to drive a pink Cadillac. So you're telling the whole world that I'm a Mary Kay consultant and I, I made it. But there's some people who believe that, you know, she didn't live up to her agreements. Um, she didn't live up to her own principles. There's one woman, for example, who said that at seminar, uh, in that first year, 63-64, Mary Kay wanted to spike the punch uh, with some kind of alcohol, some kind of alcoholic beverage to make sure that everybody was really relaxed and had a great time. And this woman was shocked because both Mary Kay and the author who wrote this um, said that, uh, you know, we were both Southern Baptists. We, neither of us drank, at least I didn't think so. And here she is spiking the punch. Um, so, uh, you know, you know, th this is either true or it isn't. I mean, it's one person saying it and who knows. But yeah, so I mean, the, the, as far as the, uh, the other side is concerned, the not so happy side, I would say that some people feel that she didn't, um, live up to her principles and that others um, uh, feel that, um, you know, just cosmetics, what, what you want to be helping people do is feel comfortable in their own skin, uh, not, to, uh, not to have to pay money to slather something on it to look different. But I, I do want to, so one woman who was very disenchanted Toward the end of Mary Kay's life, she had heard that Mary Kay was ill. This is, must have been in 95 or 96, just before her stroke. Um, she said, I'd like to, she said to Mary Kay's assistant, she got in touch with her and said, I'd like to come and see her. And uh, she did. 
And uh, this is what she says. The reason I wanted to see her was to tell her that in my opinion, she had done more to advance the economic status of women than any other person in the 20th century. Uh, I could tell she was touched and from that point on, she was the Mary Kay I remembered and loved. And then Mary Kay um, asked her, um, if you had to do it all over again, asked the author, you know, would you answer my newspaper ad? This is what she, she put a newspaper ad in 1963. Without hesitation, she said, in a heartbeat, Mary Kay, you showed me a way to accomplish my goals in life. And this is written by somebody who was very critical of her. So uh, on balance, uh, I, you know, uh, she, Mary Kay herself said that uh, money is not the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life is have you led a meaningful existence? And, and remember, that's another characteristic of charismatic people. They're more interested in making meaning than making money, although they love money. Mary Kay didn't make, she was unabashed. But she said, when you die and are called upon to, to deal with your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. And, uh, you know, so that's when, you know, you're going to be evaluated and you are going to evaluate yourself on whether your life has had meaning. So th there's a strong element of religiosity to this. There, by the way, if you look at the history of American selling, and there, a colleague of mine at the Harvard Business School named Walter Friedman wrote a wonderful book on the history of door-to-door -door selling called Birth of a Salesman. Um, uh, you often find uh, a strong do dose of religiosity. I mean, Fuller Brush itself, I mean, if you look at, you know, the book, A Foot in the Door, there's religion all over it. And, you know, why that is exactly, I don't know. Um, but it appears often enough to make me think it isn't just an accident. I, I will say this, pardon me, Chris, uh, that uh, it, it was often said in the 19th century that the hardest thing to sell door to door was a Bible. And the reason for that was that everybody who wanted one already had one. So you were basically selling it a second one. She had, Mary Kay had all kinds of other uh, tricks of the trade, which I, I, you know, I don't want to tax the patience of your listeners to go into, but one of them was uh, stuck in my mind because something my father said to me, which is that once you've made a sale, shut up because the only thing that can happen after you've made the sale is something bad. You're going to wind up unselling it. Just shut up. And um, that's not, I think that's good advice, actually. It is advice I've given to many an entrepreneur, which is once you've made the sale, shut up and take the order. And there will be times when an entrepreneur is pitching me on something, I would say, that sounds good. You have the order. Now shut up. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's very good advice and not necessarily intuitive because you kind of feel, you know, you want to cement it. You, 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 you've just had a sense of a high because you've made a sale and you want somehow for it to continue. But, you know, all you can do is unsell and then buy it back again. And you, 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 you don't want that. So. And I do think that the religiosity element is a fascinating one. 
I think a big part of it is you have to believe in order to sell. Someone who sells without believing in what they're selling, that's corrosive to the soul. It's awful. And you need to have that belief if you're going to be able to sustain it for the long term. You, you, people who sell what they don't believe in um, have to lie to themselves. And in life is short. Who wants to live that way? Exactly. You know, what you sell, I mean, look, for, not for all the years, because I taught various courses at the Harvard Business School, but for most of the years that I was there, I taught becoming a manager of capitalism, the course that you took, business history. And I was teaching a history course at a school that absolutely nobody went to to take a history course. Uh, and uh, so I felt that I had to sell that course. You know, it was a soft sell in the same way that Mary Kay's party plan is a very much of a soft sell. But nevertheless, I had to give people a reason to take the course because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm competing with Henry Reiling, who's teaching tax factors, Andre Perot, who's teaching capital markets, and then there's, you know, Richard teaching history. Uh, so I had to give them a reason to enroll in my course. And, uh, uh, but I believed in the course. It was my creation and uh, I really did feel that um, there was value for the dollar there. So, so you know, I, could, I could put my heart and soul into it. But to have to sell a course that I didn't believe in, I feel like a phony and I wouldn't be very good at it. And I think that that's where it ties in with the dark side. If you even want to call it a dark side, which is in order to make something like this work, you have to build a very strong culture, the Mary Kay culture with the songs, with the sayings, with the pink Cadillacs. That was a very strong culture. And a strong culture is, another way of saying it is to say it's a cult. Yes. And you either belong or you don't. That's and true. if you decide that it's not a fit, then your reaction is going to be extremely negative. There's very few people who join a cult that say, uh, you know, I could go either way, but I guess I'll leave. No, you're quite right. Um, but any company that has a strong culture um, rejects a certain number of people or, or, or is rejected by those people because they don't fit. If everybody fits, then the culture really can't be that strong. Um, I mean, I look, I've basically, I've worked in two places in my life, uh, the Harvard Business School and Apple. And both these places have very strong cultures. And let me tell you something, neither place is for everybody. Um, that's been my experience. Very true. And we see some of these other themes that we've seen with these other charismatic leaders. As you said, there is the theme of creating the social relationship. There is the fact that Sam Walton didn't set out to become the richest man in America. Steve Jobs didn't build Apple to make money. Henry Ford didn't run Ford to maximize profits. But these were things that inevitably happened when people had this kind of mission, when they built this kind of culture, when they built these kinds of companies, the money followed. That's correct. Um, and, and those... Uh, entrepreneurs and whom you've just mentioned, whom we've discussed, these are people who, who believe this profoundly, that um, money was a byproduct of a product or service that was 
that was a compelling value proposition. And as Ford said at one point when he was on trial when the Dodge brothers were suing because they wanted more dividends, you know, if, if you send out a car that's really value for the money and you pay workers a lot of money um, because you're selling in such volume that you, you're making a fortune, the money's gonna fall on you, you can't avoid it. Um, in 1943, which is the year before Johnson & Johnson went public, Robert Wood Johnson, who was the great figure in that company, wrote a credo. And his credo, which was rewritten by uh, James E. Burke, who you may remember the Tylenol cases, Chris, perhaps? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, maybe I've referred to them previously. I wrote those. And Burke, um, Burke uh, rewrote the credo. But the essence of the credo remained the same in Johnson & Johnson, which is that if we take care of our customers, take care of our employees, take care of our suppliers, um, we're, the shareholders are gonna take care of themselves. And um, the truth is that companies that, that have credos like this uh, succeed, and which raises an obvious question, which is why don't all companies have run on this basis? And so what's the answer to that? Well, it feels like in order to create that credo and to go along with that credo, a culture that actually lives up to that credo, you need a great charismatic leader. And you can say what you want about Mary Kay, Henry Ford, Sam Walton, Steve Jobs. There aren't a lot of those figures being made. Those characteristics are not common. These people didn't just come from nowhere. They had a special set of skills, a special set of philosophies, and a certain kind of persistence and drive that just the normal business leader or executive doesn't have. Just the regular manager doesn't have the messianic fervor of a true founder or leader. You've just defined charisma, and you've just explained why it is that people need it, why it is that it's in, it's a, at the pinnacle, it's in very short supply. But if you have ever been on a search committee, uh, either for a, a corporation, for a nonprofit, or uh, you know, for faculty for the Harvard Business School, you're looking for that spark. And um, you know, if you, if you, if you see it, sometimes you can be fooled by it. I mean, I, there's one particular hire. Uh, you know that you, sometimes the charisma can blind you. But uh, uh, because behind the charisma, there's got to be uh, a solid understanding that you've got to deliver the goods. And, you know, if that's not there, um, then the person, you know, winds up as a failure or as a phony or you wind up as looking like an idiot for having hired that individual. So it's a lose-lose all the way around. Well, that's something the American people are contemplating this November, that's for certain. Well, uh, they are. Um, and uh, are you going to Tulsa this evening or not? Uh, I'm not going to Tulsa, but I will be observing what happens very closely. One final question about Mary Kay Ash, which is the following. We've now talked about these four figures. 
Steve Jobs, Henry Ford, Sam Walton, Mary Kay Ash. And Mary Kay Ash has been called one of the great female business leaders of the 20th century. And yet when I say those four names, I'd be willing to bet that while there's probably near universal recognition of the first three, there might not be that same level of recognition for Mary Kay Ash. Where do you think she belongs in that pantheon of business leaders in the 20th century? And do you think it's her gender that causes her to be overlooked? uh, First of all, I mean, you've answered your your own question. You've answered it accurately. And uh, um, uh, I think it's a matter of her gender. I mean, she was successful in every dimension that you can imagine. Uh, when she died in 2001, she left an estate of, I believe it was $98 million. This is from a standing start. Uh, and she really only started the company when she was 45 years old and bet the farm, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, the company is still thriving. And a lot of women, I mean, there's one woman whom I'm, I'm crazy about, actually. She uh, helps me... Uh, um, as an emeritus professor at the Harvard Business School, who is, who, you know, uh, a Mary Kay, I'm not sure where she is on the ladder of success, but when she saw I was ordering a lot of books about Mary Kay, she mentioned that she's, you know, she's in the business and she's a spark plug. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad she's there because she's going to be able to, there's, there's going to be nothing stopping her. And, um, you know, that's exciting. Well, in the immortal words of Mary Kay Ash and her mother, you can do it. Well, I hope so. Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule for this discussion of Mary Kay Ash. As we've seen, the nature of the charismatic leader is the ability to tell people that they can do it. And that ability spans all these different industries. We've talked about great technology breakthroughs. We've talked about retail. We've talked about direct selling. Wherever you go, you see the impact of charisma. And I hope that more people, as a result of today's podcast, will know, understand, and perhaps refer to the lessons of Mary Kay Ash. Well, that w- I hope so too. They're worth learning. Richard, thank you so much as always. And thank you everyone else. It's wonderful to have you. And we're looking forward to coming to you soon with another great charismatic leader.